Hi, and welcome to the In Bold Company podcast. I'm your host, Christina Gonzalez-Sander. And if you're new here, welcome. Each week on the In Bold Company podcast, I discuss various topics with women of color about anything and everything from entrepreneurship, family, money, self-discovery, and more. I wanted to create a space for women of color to explore and reflect on their identities in an open way. So today's guests are the women of Rosa Rebellion. Rosa Rebellion is a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. And the two women that are Rosa Rebellion is Virginia, who is the Director of Community Engagement and Social Equity for the University of Texas. And Megan is a civil rights attorney at the Texas Civil Rights Project. Both of them are incredibly beautiful and powerful women who I am so honored to know and am continuously learning from. So I'm really excited to have them on the podcast. In today's episode, we talk about how you can use your voice to create change, the importance of mental health and activism, and we also go a little bit into media representation. Like most episodes, We also really talk about how they found their voice. And after re-listening to the conversation, I really want to encourage everyone listening to remember using your voice doesn't equate to having to do a bold or grand act. You don't need a lot of Instagram followers to create change. Big stories don't have to come from big people. And that's something that we're gonna talk a lot about throughout this episode. So again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share with a friend who would love it too. As you know, we always start off with pulling an oracle card and this week's theme is thrive. So if it resonates with you, let me know and make sure you stick around until the end of the episode and I'll be sharing some upcoming news for Embold Company. All right, let's get into it. Well, we can go ahead and get started. You know, normally I do the interviews in person, and I love having people pull an Oracle card. But since we're not in person, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to shuffle, and then you can tell me when to stop. Okay. And then I'll just pull one for you. And I'll pull the top one. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to shuffle now. Stop. So the card that I pulled is Thrive. And I'll send this to you so you can see what it looks like. These are my favorite cards ever. But mostly I do this so that, not that we have like a theme for the conversation, but I love to end them kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation and seeing like if anything came up that was related to it. So for Thrive, it says, what you focus on magnifies. And as you move and direct your energy into a healthy, unquestioning current, one which foundations are based on surrendering and trusting that every moment is here to teach you something to help you crack through the cage that has kept you bound you will flourish and grow into your most authentic self. Well, I mean, I couldn't literally imagine a better card for this moment. I know. (laughs) Perfectly capture my exact sort of mindset right now. I mean, you know, as you and I were talking, we're obviously 
recording this in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And there's been this interesting juxtaposition, I think, at least on the internet, right? Some mm-hmm. folks who are really preaching this message of like, use this time, be as creative as possible. Like, there's no excuse, learn a new language, you know, write a book. <laughs> and then this other part where people are saying like, how about we also give room for the fact that some of this is traumatizing and triggering and mm-hmm. stressful. And also it shouldn't just be about you. How can you serve others? And I've been really, you know, trying to oscillate back and forth between particularly sort of from my paradigm, like spiritual paradigm, there's this, like there's this juxtaposition of like fear or faith and that you can only have one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I've been really trying to be comfortable sitting in this space of like, no, they can coexist. Like it's oh, okay yes. to have faith through the fear or it's okay to acknowledge that fear is going to exist and still have faith in your ability to adapt and navigate and have faith that like your purpose in God for me or like your purpose in this moment isn't meaningless mm-hmm. just because you have anxiety or stress. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this idea of thriving, I think probably a really critical moment for us like here in America where we have this very pointed picture of what thriving looks like. Like there's even this kind of prototype of what that looks like on Instagram. And it's like, we're all going to have to figure out the different layers and the different sort of image of thriving in this moment. Yes. No, I love what you just said because I felt the same way. You know, I think you're right. Like on Instagram, especially there's two very polar opposites where people are like, use that time, get it done. Like all these things, but you don't have to, if you don't want to, you can, if you want, it depends also on how you cope through things. You know, it just depends on a lot of different factors. And we have to like tell people that it's okay to have both sides. For me, I literally posted something today where I was like, I'm a very optimistic person, but that does not mean that I'm not still worried or concerned or stressed. You know, I work in the event industry. That's my full-time job. Like (laughs) the event industry was completely wiped out. You work in community engagement. You literally cannot be near your community to engage with them unless it's virtually. So everyone's pivoting. You can have a good day and a bad day, especially in this time. Or a good hour and a bad hour. (laughs) A good minute, minute. bad minute. Honestly, what are days anymore? You know, what's Wednesday versus Thursday? (laughs) Nothing. Everything's bleeding into each other, honestly. No, seriously. Yeah. I'm in a group chat with, obviously, you know, Nina and Regine. And mm-hmm. we were like, yesterday was good. Today was not great. An hour ago, I was happy. And now I'm not happy. So that's where we're all at right now. Also, I want to say, I don't think I have I seen you since we did the shoot for Awesome Women. Oh, my goodness. It's really sad if that's the case. But I think it might be the case. I think it is too. I mean, not that we've been able to leave our houses, but still. True. But yeah, yeah between January and now, I don't think. Because that was like the first week of January after yeah. New Year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for having me on that. It was so wonderful. It was beautiful. Well, I'm one, I'm just glad that you accepted the invitation. But it's also this weird thing where it didn't feel like it's, it's like an invite for me. It just felt like a space where all those women should naturally have been in. And yeah, I think 
that's a lot of what I really appreciate about what you do in Bold and what you do through Misfits Fest is like you're constantly like disrupting and irritating spaces that typically wouldn't have you or me or other women of color in them. And I honestly couldn't have thought of doing that shoot or article any other way. It was amazing. Truly. I have the magazine at my house, obviously, and (laughs) it sits in my living room. I mean, so from what I know, I heard that you also requested that they include diversity throughout the entire magazine. Is that Am I on point with that? Or like, can you talk about the process of what happened with that? Sure. I mean, first of all, I do want to recognize that the team there was really open to Mm -hmm. working with me, which is not always the case. So I was really grateful that they, they didn't just in some ways default to their original vision and or structure and ways of doing things. And so basically, you know, they reached out to me and said for some strange reason that they wanted to do a cover article around the work that I do. And I was kind of immediately like, no, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> my <laughs> default answer. Because one of my growing frustrations, I think, with media in general, but particularly in a space like Austin, Mm-hmm. is that you've lived here, you understand sort of this irritating juxtaposition of being this very liberal and progressive and weird city. And yet that doesn't hold weight when we think about actually interrogating the ways in which we build spaces and systems. Right. And are we truly being inclusive and equitable? And mm-hmm. I think over the past few years, I've kind of gotten this dynamic, particularly with media and storytelling, where if we do happen to invite or include a voice of color, it's the same voices over and over again. Almost like these become the approved voices. Yeah, like the token voices that are supposed to represent everybody. The whole diaspora of Mm -hmm. of melanin. And that's become frustrating, also exhausting, and also just a disservice to the true reality of our city. And so one of the ways I've realized that I can contribute to disrupting that normative behavior is when I'm asked, me saying no, if particularly if it's appropriate, and I feel like I'm not the best equipped to speak on that or participate, and then helping to redirect them to 10, 20, 30 other incredible voices that otherwise wouldn't be seen or heard. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I was planning to do here. And then they were open to just having a conversation on the call. So my other hesitation was kind of like, mm, interesting to do a whole issue on diversity, inclusion, and equity when it's not necessarily what I've always seen come from this publication or other publications like it. So I was really intrigued about like, how are y'all going to do a entire issue on this conversation? Mm-hmm. But is there actually going to be some transparency about where you guys are in your own journey of equity? And so that's basically what I laid out to them was like, I'd originally wanted that group shot to be the cover image, but you know, I don't know if you've seen, but they you know have a particular aesthetic and structure and it's always one profile. Right. And so I said, okay, but could I, a, do a group portrait of women that I admire, that I'm inspired by, who are doing this work every day. How could we recognize them? And then I got actually connected to a woman named Ashley, who is in the community, 
who had been behind the scenes talking to them about doing an all black issue for Black History Month. Mm. And that ended up not transpiring. And so in conversation with her, I was like, well, what if we at least did a feature, right? Exhibiting some of the incredible boss bay black women in Austin. And so ended up kind of following up with them and saying like, I'm on board to do this article. If A, we can do a group portrait celebrating other women doing this work. B, there's a feature around black women in celebration or recognition of Black History Month. And C, that there is some sort of message, whether it's the letter from the editor or a separate mm-hmm. article acknowledging where Austin women is in this journey. Because I find it to be inauthentic for right. an issue preaching about what Austin should do if you as a publication haven't honored that. And right. I thought the letter from uh, Melinda Garvey, who's the publisher, was really thoughtful really transparent, and I think most importantly, demonstrated the action that they are taking in order to make sure that moving forward comprehensively, this is the ethos of Austin Woman. Because like, it can't be the name of your magazine if you're not truly representing Austin Women. Austin Women. Yeah. yeah. And to their credit, they launched a, a committee that's going to serve to basically be eyes and ears for the whole editorial process and or um, content to ensure mm-hmm. that folks aren't being left out. And so, yeah, it was honestly a pretty, you know, like on face value, it was like, oh, okay, this is a wonderful thing to be a part of. And, you know, these are some really beautiful photos I'll have. Yeah. <laughs> but it was pretty internally challenging. Like, I had a lot of anxiety about it. One, I have anxiety really? about, like, you know, anytime I've ever been like recognized or honored or whatever, I'm like, I really rather you just like cut a check to invest in the work we're doing. Like I can mm. do it without the like putting on another fancy dress and yeah. do, you know, a chicken dinner. Like I'd right. rather we just figure out a way to support the do work. Something. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a, can we all just walk the walk versus you, you know, I think that there is something to be said about certain instances where women of color, people of color can be tokenized in being like, look, we're recognizing this person um, and the work that they're doing. And sometimes it is the same person over and over again. And then that's kind of like all they do, right? There has to be a lot more action behind the recognition, the talking, the publicity. Like what are... What are people actually doing and where is the intent behind that? Exactly. And I think it's really awesome that they had a committee now that's going to be overlooking the editorial process because I do think that that is really important for it to be monitored, right? It needs to be audited, especially if you're going to be saying that you're representing all of Austin women. Yeah, there has to be accountability, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, because I think the response to like doing an all black issue was like, we're not a single race magazine. And we're like, well, that is actually really hard to understand. If we look at a 12 month calendar year, the majority of the women <laughs> on the cover are white. Yeah. And then we look at the inside that magazine and everyone in that issue is white. And the argument is also like, yeah, you should have maybe an all Latinx issue during Hispanic Heritage Month. You should do an all Asian, Asian American. Yeah. I guess during, why not though is the real exactly, question. Asian, I don't understand. Pacific Islander month. Like why not? Like 
if we're talking about actually instituting a shift in the paradigm of the stories we tell and the ways in which we tell those stories, then that would require we do things differently. And I think that is oftentimes the pushback, right, to actual shift to this conversation of equity is Mm -hmm. that it it actually requires changing the system, the institution, the practices, because the problem is that those practices were developed without us in mind. Right. My co-founder for Rose Rebellion always says they weren't made for us and they don't bend for us. And mm-hmm. so in order for, act- for us to actually create change, we have to be willing to do things differently. Otherwise, we're just doing patchwork. And patchwork isn't sustainable. And yeah, patchwork isn't long-term. innovative. No. So growing up, you grew up here in Austin. Have you always been an activist? I know that for Rosa Rebellion, you guys talk a lot about creative activism. That is what the platform is there for. Kind of how did you get into this? You know, like what were you like growing up? Well, on a fateful day in 1988, I came into the world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I think one of the things that seems to have been sort of a common sort of thread through my life, and part of it, it was just born out of circumstance and I think kind of self-preservation, is that if I were to go back and look at my elementary school experience, my high school experience, my college experience, my grad school experience, Mm-hmm. I always somehow end up in this in this space where I have to create a space for people that look like me. Mm-hmm. That it's either doesn't pre-exist, isn't functioning, or isn't operational. So right in high school, that was creating a space for Black students to come and gather. I went to a high school where I was the only Black female in my grade. We were the only Black family in the neighborhood that we grew up in. And so part of it was constantly asking, what are the ways in which we can create space that honor us, right, and recognize mm-hmm. this? So part of that was self-preservation. You know, and then I look at college, creating a diversity inclusion committee, because that didn't exist in the infrastructure of the college. And we were constantly having to question certain practices of recruitment of students of the retention of students of color, of the academic success of students of color, of the lack of curriculum that honored our identity. And then I look at grad school and it was the same thing, or even moving back to Austin after undergrad Mm -hmm. and having grown up here my whole life and realizing there was no space for young professionals of color, not in just a social circumstance, But when we looked at the pipeline into leadership, there was nothing that said we were welcomed, we were being recruited, or that we were needed. And so, you know, I ended up helping build the Urbanly Young Professionals. So, you know, I don't know if it's it's sort of a chicken or the egg thing, or it's some of it's self-preservation and some of it is like selfishly, I just want these things for me. But other things is I've always had this sort of dimension to me is like, it doesn't exist. Cool. Then let's create it. Like what's stopping mm-hmm. us from creating it? The only thing anyone can ever say to us is no. And then it's we're going to no. find a way to go around it. Yeah. And no is not really a final answer. Yeah. And I think I constantly get irritated with the exhaustion, but I think I often sit in the intersection of this. And I think Megan does too in her work. And then we do collectively through Rose Rebellion which is working with inside systems and institutions that weren't Mm -hmm. built for us or made for us 
but then circumventing those spaces and just creating something from scratch. Because it's sort of this, for me, I always use the metaphor, you know, folks for a really long time, we love using this imagery of like a seat at the table. We're giving you a seat at the table. Well, that still means that someone's in power and gets to decide who gets a seat, what type of seat they get, where they get to sit at the table. And so even when we're working within systems or within organizations, we're constantly having to like pound at the door and say, you forgot us, you forgot them, you should have done it this way. Sometimes there's such a freedom and a more meaningful impact when we can create things that didn't exist and then we get to decide how tall the table is, mm-hmm. what the table's made out of, how many seats it can hold. And so I think that's ultimately, you know, how Rose Rebellion was created. So what I was talking to Virginia about earlier was kind of I wanted to know what your experience was growing up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up as a woman of color. She grew up here in Austin. She was mentioning that she was the only like black woman in in high school, right? Virginia here. Yeah. Just the whole city. The Just the whole city. Yes. So, you know what I mean? Like, I want to know what it, what your experience is like because I have friends that grew up in Houston, for example, and they're like, it was very diverse where I was from. And I was like, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago mostly, and it was not yeah. diverse at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, I um, grew up in actually the house that my mom was raised in by her grandmother. So it was my great grandmother's house and on that land in Tyler, Texas. And Tyler's like a really small town that now as an adult, I realize had a lot of complex racial dynamics going on. It was very racially segregated. But as a child, I didn't see a lot of that because on either side of my house, like physically, in Tyler were cousins. So I had a cousin to the left and a cousin to the right that Mm -hmm. lived there. And I lived in the country country, like across the street were woods and like cows, like no street lights, like the country. And like when we would go to the store, we would like go to town. We'd say we're going to town. So it was very country. And then on the majority of the things that we did, you know, there were like black neighborhoods because of how racially segregated the city was. Mm. And then when I turned 11, we moved to Beaumont, which was a completely different experience. And I ended up being around a lot of black people, again, a very racially segregated city. So the West End being primarily white people and the rest of the city kind of being people of color. Like my high school had very few white people, like I could kind of count them. But all of that being said, I still had like complicated issues around race that Mm -hmm. I didn't always recognize. You know, even it took really even after law school, I started to recognize some more of it. But I remember when I went to elementary school, like my best friend was this white girl. And I felt for whatever reason, like I could tell as a kid, like I felt like white culture you know, mm-hmm. white people say they don't have a culture, um, but white culture, <laughs> dominant culture was the thing that like I aspired to be. And yeah. so it was like, you know, I would watch Full House and I wanted to be Michelle um, and I wanted my sister yeah. to be DJ, you know, like every I would watch Boy Meets World. And to me, that was like, you know, the best. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of like what I saw on TV and the things that 
I engaged there where to me it was like certain things meant that you had made it or that you would be accepted in the world. Yeah. And I internalized those things as a kid. And, you know, so it took me a while to feel like comfortable around like black people. In fact, my dad, when I was in, which is crazy because I've been around. Yeah. Could you talk more about that? I'm really interested (laughs) in hearing that. I mean, I already loved what you said earlier about like white culture and wanting to be Michelle and, and that sort of thing. And I don't know if people really realize how much we internalize media, right. And what we see as beautiful or successful or cool. And you don't, you know, you don't just woke one day and realize that you'd been internalizing all that stuff. Right. I think, man, it was so interesting because like I said, I had cousins on either side of me. I went to a black church. My dad was a pastor. Like I was around black people all the time, but I think I always felt a little bit like misplaced almost. And I think I was just internalizing so much from what it meant to be wealthy, Mm -hmm. what it meant to, you know, have privilege, like, what it meant to, you know, when people would talk about dialects, or what did it mean to speak correctly, all of those things, I think I had internalized. And so, you know, one of the decisions when we moved to Beaumont that my parents intentionally made was I could have gone to school on the west side of town, which was primarily white. And my parents made the decision that I would not do that. They really wanted me to get comfortable in my own skin and get comfortable Mm -hmm. being around black people from all types of backgrounds. And I think that that was really, really crucial for me because I moved from like kind of being uncomfortable or feeling like I didn't fit or feeling like I was just kind of like a different type of person that might not be accepted by black culture to like finding pride in it. And then I went all the way to the other side, which is, you know, like, <laughs> like I'm going to yeah. dismantle, you know, white privilege and whiteness is a construct. And so, <laughs> well, what was that transition like, though, for you? You know, I know you said earlier that you kind of didn't feel like you fit in with black people. And then now you're on the complete opposite side of the spectrum from how you used to feel. Like what changed for you? Yeah, I think it was just it was gradual. You know, it was mm-hmm. like my friends changed. And really, it was just proximity. I mean, I just went to school that really just didn't have that many white people. Um, So, (laughs) so like, but my friends changed. I found a group that I did fit in with that were, you know, pretty much all black people. I, you know, came to college and I went to UT and being in such a white space where, you know, I could literally be in a class of 300 and be the only black person that was you know, something very jarring about that, especially coming from pretty much like an all minority high school Mm -hmm. that drove me to like find my people. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So at UT, it was like, you know, I was really involved in like black UT, black Umoja, black groups at UT, the multicultural information center, you know, really involved in just kind of like people of color space at UT and recognize the ways in which, dominant culture were negatively impacting my college experience and really wanting, really feeling empowered to do something about it. Now, that part of me had kind of always been there. You know, the idea Mm -hmm. that if I saw something unfair or an injustice, I would want to do something. 
Yeah. And so slowly but surely kind of getting involved there and feeling more and more empowered to use my voice and figuring out the ways in which I could use my voice, I naturally, you know, came into this kind of, I guess, activism, advocacy role that I've like continued in pretty much every space that I'm in now. Mm -hmm. I'm so jealous of the both of you that you were in undergrad and, you know, finding your people in that way and trying to create groups and be part of groups with other people of color, because I went to school in Iowa. I went to the (laughs) University of Iowa and it was very white. (laughs) Is it in Ames, Iowa? No, that's Iowa State. I went to Iowa City. Okay. Oh man. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of white people. (laughs) I think that transition was interesting because I mean, Williams, I went to school in Massachusetts, wasn't too dissimilar from my high school experience. It was just obviously a bigger space. So the scale changed. Mm. I was so excited in college to like pursue finding my like melanated, (laughs) like group of folks that it just became sort of this organic pursuit again you know part of it is self-preservation and part of it is then actually feeling provoked to be a part of shifting the way that that space operates and for me that was so connected you know to sort of media and storytelling because when I think about my first sort of affirmations of being a black girl growing up they came Mm -hmm. from the fact that my grandmother every Christmas, every birthday was shipping me these like beautifully illustrated books about black people and black little girls that I wasn't finding in my elementary school library. Right. And so part of the internalized messaging of who has power, who has agency, who's beautiful that I was seeing on television was being like undermined by the labor and work that my grandparents and parents were doing by like putting these images of blackness and black history mm-hmm. around me. And so that was the avenue that I actively pursued in college. You know, it was, I'm going to study the history of the Latinx and black experience in the Americas. I'm going to write my thesis to integrate Williams in the mid 1970s, it was constantly trying to sort of not just dismantle those systems, but also provide a new image, a new language. And so I think that has always translated into the work that I do. And I think it's kind of the collective ethos of Rose Rebellion is that we recognize that this work can be done in these very structured, traditional spaces. Mm -hmm. And through different tools, whether that's policy or criminal justice um, or education reform, like we recognize the power of working inside those systems to make sure that they bend and or completely dismantled in order to honor and recognize and support people of color. But then we also recognize the innovation and creativity that comes from using media and art and the written form to also disrupt the way that um, normative culture is seen and is participated in. And I think that's where we've come. I can't say that we've developed it, but maybe we should (laughs) think about copywriting, Megan, Um, creative (laughs) activism, which is that we think 
it's a requirement, right? Like that you can't have disruption without innovation. The whole point of it is that we're creating something that hasn't existed. Yeah. And when we think Mm -hmm. about the education system in this country, when we think about the criminal justice system, when we think about media and movies and film and books, like the whole point is that those things were developed with only a particular part of our community and societies in mind. And so in order for those things to operate differently, it's going to require our creativity and our innovation and our willingness to do things in a way that we've never done them before. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. like, so I talk about Full House a lot because I think it had a profound impact on me, even down to the fact of like, we lived on like nine acres of land, but because we lived in the country, we didn't have sidewalks and sidewalks to me meant affluence. Huh. So I, I mean, we had like this, you know, what I would now know as an adult with a mortgage, um, <laughs> a nice <laughs> house, you know, but to me, I never wanted people to come over. Because I had internalized that like full house was the picture, which is really funny, like as a kid, because now you realize like now I realize what full house was. But the point is that images and media were extremely powerful influencers Mm -hmm. in my life. And to the point where like I when I went to undergrad was a film major. I really wanted to make movies my whole life. Wow, that's really cool. I ended up, you know, in law school. But when I first started undergrad, I was a film major. And all I knew was that I wanted to be the female Spike Lee because I knew that Spike Lee made movies that were about something, but that were entertaining, uh-huh. right? And I didn't yeah. have an Ava DuVernay at the time. I didn't have a Shonda Rhimes, right? And mm-hmm. now we have them. And Ava particularly is the embodiment of everything that I had envisioned, you know, when I was thinking of being the female Spike Lee. And I think that with Rosa Rebellion, we recognize like there's so many different influences that are impacting our view of ourselves. Also, the view of the dominant culture of what it means to be women of color at all times. That if if people who are naturally kind of in those spaces can feel empowered and supported in those spaces to do what they are naturally inclined to do and to bring in the perspective of women of color and to represent us unapologetically, then we can change like the stories, right? Like we can change Mm -hmm. the story of Megan who didn't feel comfortable, you know, in her own skin and had these images, you know, kind of compounding that. So. uh, Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. It is those like media and media representation. It is really powerful and it is a huge influence on Everybody, right? Because it's the images that you see all the time. I mean, I watch Full House every day after school. So I'm like, you know, my cousin and I would like get ready. Like we would go and sit at the same time every day, watch episodes. And it was a huge part of us growing up in our relationship to each other. And I really do love the term that you guys have here with creative activism because art, like you said earlier, does go hand in hand with change and activism because you do have to be creative. You have to be innovative and art is also very influential. Right. And I really love that. Big thank you to Boss Babes ATX for sponsoring season one of the In Bold Company podcast. 
So you guys, I love this nonprofit so much because they have been so supportive of Embold Company since the very, very beginning, and especially with producing this podcast. So not only have they supported me, but each year they educate and connect 1,500 plus emerging women and non-binary creatives, entrepreneurs, and leaders through their different programs with 20,000 plus community members per year attending their programs. I mean, honestly, that's like a mouthful for me to say, but they do such a great job. And we all know that being an entrepreneur, creative, human trying to do things is super hard without access to resources and community. In May 2020, Boss Babes ATX will be introducing their first ever membership. So this is for women and non-binary leaders seeking personal and professional development. The membership tiers will be anywhere from $5 to $50 a month, and it will include access to Boss Babes ATX personal resource guides to intimate networking and trainings with other thought leaders and mentors in the community. So to learn more about Boss Babes ATX programs and their memberships, head to bossbabes.org and you can use the code EMBOLD2020 for 10% off anything in their shop, their membership when it launches, and all ticketed Boss Babes ATX events for 2020. You can support them while supporting us. Thank you so much, Boss Babes ATX. For you guys now today... We've seen a lot of changes in media representation in movies. What have you been thinking about that? There's definitely more movies now where there's Asian women that are the star, right? I mean, I love me a good chick flick. So <laughs> I love um, I love to all the boys I've ever loved. I love okay. YA anything. So oh, what is it? Definitely be my maybe. Yes. Yes. Oh, which <laughs> I thought was so funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're we're in this moment where we're seeing more spaces being developed to nurture that type of art. Like, you know, I think if you just look at Netflix, this is not a, an ad for Netflix, but we've named <laughs> two of their shows already. You know, they created Strong Black Lead and they just created uh, Call Me Mod, which is the like Latinx version of which is it basically just is helping like streamline content on the platform that particularly focuses on movies or television that either have a central character that is Black or Latinx or is written by, I think one of the things that still continues to be problematic, right, is Mm -hmm. who's pulling the strings for this type of content and therefore who has the power to romanticize certain narratives or to create this monolithic perspective of a particular experience. And so if we look at you know, the studios, who's running the studios, who's actually directing these films, who's writing these films. I think there was just an article about the live action Mulan, which I am so excited to see. And then turns out that the costume designer, the head designer, was this white British woman. Mm. And she did this whole article to be like so braggadocious about the fact that she was like, yeah, I spent like a whole two weeks in different provinces of China doing really intense research about the culture. And people are like, yeah, imagine if we could have just hired someone. We could have just hired someone that already knew. (laughs) Who lives, is Chinese, who lives in those provinces and like didn't have to do 
two weeks of PhD research. And yeah. like the fact that like she didn't even have the wherewithal to recognize how problematic that was, that in order to bring this lived experience to life, she spent two weeks, which is not a long time, let's <laughs> not long put time. that on the table, is infuriating, right? When there is like so much brilliant talent and innovation happening in the Asian market at large in terms of fashion and style, but particularly the Chinese market. And it's like, y'all couldn't find someone to design the costumes for one of the biggest live action films, you know, in the past decade. So I think for me, who has power in creating the actual platforms that are producing Mm -hmm. this content? And I think that's part of sort of the vision for Rose Rebellion is that we can actually be a space where we equip and then empower and then help elevate those voices. Because so often, particularly as women of color, our voices and our stories are being co-opted. You know, it's our experience, but we're not the ones writing it. It's our experience, but we're not the ones putting it on film. It's our experience, but we're not the ones helping to shape how that's actually going to impact policy change. Mm-hmm. I also think so while I'm so excited about the growth of content that's happening, I'm still looking to see like who are the levers and who are the ones like who have the power to pull those levers. Yeah. yeah I mean, Megan, what were you going to say? I've been encouraged, but also kind of saddened, I guess it's like both by the work that's being done by women of color in the field, right. Of um, media in particular. So Ava, you know, really, really working to make sure that her writing room is at least 50%, you know, women of color. And I think she recently had one that was like 100% women. But then also thinking about the labor that's required in that, right? Like that we still in 2020 are having to, and really having the access and the acclaim and the success of someone like Ava still have to fight Mm -hmm. in those rooms and the cost that comes with that you know, or you have Gabrielle Union who raises issues on America's Got Talent and then loses her job for it, you know? So you still have fallout happening because we are raising our voices. And so that's really, really frustrating. So to be, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess my extreme dream is to see us get to the point where we don't have to ask anyone, (laughs) you know, there's no one that we're answering to. And we can just feel the freedom to create and to tell our stories kind of without also having to carry the extra burden of, you know, fighting these execs who don't get it. Yeah. Jumping through the hoops. Jumping through the hoops because (laughs) it's both, right? Like you're excited. There's already the labor of telling our stories and reclaiming that and being sure that we're the voices that are getting to tell the stories. But then also just the labor of saying like, I'm still fighting for a place. I've already proven that I can bring in, you know, million dollar blockbusters, but I'm still having to fight you to understand why it should be people who look like me writing these stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's still a lot of work to be still done. So much, so much work to be done, but I, I am encouraged by what I'm seeing so far. Um, I wish people didn't lose their jobs for raising their voices like Gabrielle Union or have to walk away. Like I think one of the writers of Crazy Rich Asians walked away from the sequel, I think, because she Mm -hmm. was being paid less than her male counterpart. It was almost a third left. Yeah, and it was uh, absurd. Wow. Like, it's like, but, you know, so she, in that moment, obviously, you know, advocated for herself and is being an activist, but it also cost, 
you know, a lot mm-hmm. do that. And yeah, so it would be nice when we are the ones writing the chicks. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I was having a conversation via, you know, well, all great conversations happen, Instagram group chat <laughs> and yeah. with my brother and two of my other friends, we were talking about, you know, to Megan's point that there is some encouragement in seeing the expansion of content that's happening and who's at the helm. And I will say that one of the encouraging, I think, pieces that's come out of probably the last three to four years is that, you know, when we grew up, there were like five choices of content that featured Black families, right? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like in the 90s, it was Fresh Prince. It was The Cosby Show. It was Sister, Sister. Maybe we'll throw in like Hanging with Mr. Cooper. You know, and so it was like, if you weren't watching those then you weren't watching anything at all. And there was also this sense of responsibility to watch them because you realize as soon as the numbers dipped, we would lose it. And I've actually talked to a lot of my Asian American friends in college who felt the same way about like, oh, everyone's going to go see The Farewell. Everyone's going to see Crazy Rich Asians. and Everyone needs to see Parasite because like, if we don't support it, we're not going to see ourselves. Like this is our moment. And I think where we are now, where if we look at the landscape, because I do think Black media has kind of pushed things a little further in the past year or two, right, where we have Insecure and Atlanta and Blackish mm-hmm. and Greenleaf, right? Well, if I were to like go through that list or power, you know, I'm probably only watching two of those shows, three of those shows based on my own interest, right? Yeah. And I think what is somewhat hilariously progress is the fact that there are different types of content being produced by Black people that some of it, you know, we could question the taste level, we could question sort of like the how great the content is, but it's progress that we have those many options and that diversity where we get to opt in what we want to watch. Yeah. And I think what's also kind of an interesting sort of output of that that I've actually been really interested to write about is that like we've achieved in some ways one of the foundational principles of white privilege which is the freedom to be mediocre the freedom to like Mm. just show up with content that is questionable but because of by virtue of your access and power you get <laughs> like all the star wars movies like every like I'll every i'm gonna tell you that i agree with you but for the sake of this podcast and people <laughs> boycotting us but it's true it's like one of the greatest foundations of that is that you don't have to even fight to create because by yeah. virtue of being able to navigate that system and be invited into certain writer rooms or have a certain name precede you as a director, no one's questioning whether or not your content will sell. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this weird thing to kind of maybe celebrate, but it's like maybe we'll get to a point where folks that just create content and it doesn't have to be life-changing backbending content in order to thrive and to have a place. Right. It is like that, right? I feel like a lot of us in this space and anyone that is making, creating things, we have that strong pressure for that. It has to be so good that no one can say anything about it. 
transformative, yeah. mm-hmm. which I think is very similar to the way a lot of us were raised, probably more so our parents' generation than ours. But, you know, I think the problematic sort of construct of the model minority, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we talked a lot about this with Alice Yee during one of our yeah. panels during International Women's Day. It was just like this idea that you have to be perfect and show up or you'll never be invited again or you won't get hired. And the same thing I think was true for Latinx and Black communities where we were constantly told we had to be 5, 10, 20 times better on anything that we did, particularly within education, mm-hmm. in order to be considered. Yeah. You have to come right. so correct that nobody can yeah. tell you. Well, I want to circle back to what Megan said earlier about being encouraged, but also being discouraged. I feel like there are a lot of people out there that would probably want some encouragement <laughs> maybe from both of you guys. Like, I think it can be scary. It can be very tiring to keep pushing barriers for yeah. women of color. What advice do you have for people that are doing that right now, for people that are pushing the narrative and expanding the narrative for us? Yeah, I think giving ourselves permission to show up imperfectly, right? Like when we talk about the model minority or the pressure to maybe not raise your voice, it's like, well, just be grateful, right? Like don't shake things up too much. We don't want to bring attention. And so to give ourselves the permission to just, you know, show up as we are, but also to take stock of your mental wellness. One of our projects and the first project we launched was called Rebel and Rest. And it's all about, you know, the people who are on the front lines, our activists, our advocates, whether it be by profession, right? So rights attorney, what Virginia mm-hmm. does, or whether it is like you're literally organizing the marches, you know, it's that I recognized just in my own work that it was having a profound impact on my mental wellness. And I was just getting really burned out and really just emotionally fatigued from it all and recognized that Mm -hmm. I really needed support and that there were likely others who needed support who weren't resourced and, and wouldn't, you know, go pay a therapist or whatever. And so Rebel and Rest was really created to encourage our activists, our frontline advocates to breathe, you know, and to really take a moment and to give themselves the permission to take care of themselves. And sometimes that means you don't fight that fight this time. And sometimes yeah. it, it means that you give yourself permission to not be the one who takes up every single mantle. And then sometimes it means that, no, you fight that fight at this time. And that's your, <laughs> you know, mantle to take up, but that you you know, allow yourself the moments that you need to take stock of your mental wellness in it. And so the way that I do that is, so by profession, I'm constantly every single day, my job is literally to look at the criminal justice system in Texas and to interrogate it and to try to transform it to be an actually just system. Because right now I wouldn't even say more just, it's just injustice. So And, you know, that takes its toll. And so in my spare time, I don't, for instance, watch, I stop watching videos, police shooting videos. Mm. You know, I don't watch a lot of criminal justice related things. And then I might not, you know, in my own time where I need to kind of protect it, you know, I might not show up to every march. And it's hard to say that, I guess, publicly. Um, I do show up to some marches, but it just might be that like that week, it was a lot. Like I did a lot of trying to bend systems in my professional life and I need a moment. 
in my personal life to breathe. Yeah. But there was a mm-hmm. time when it's I could to take yeah, care of And there was a time when I couldn't even say that. Like, it was like, I have to be there. Like, people are going to think I'm not down if I'm not there. People are going to think, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, like, it's okay to say, you know what, like, I need a moment. So, you know, my encouragement is for us to fight for joy in this fight and what it looks like to fight to have joy. Joy is an act of resistance is to give yourself the time Mm, that that you need to breathe and to take care of your mental health. Yeah. Virginia, what do you think? Yeah, I think connected to that, I think there's this immense pressure, not just to show up, but for me, at least, I think in this moment where I'm constantly trying to gauge the impact that I'm having, and sometimes it's really hard to see it. And, you know, I joke all the time. I'm like, at the beginning of the year, I'm like, all right, team, we're going to solve racism this year. December 31st comes around like, well, dang it, we didn't do it. All right, let's try it again next year. But I think as this world continues to feel like move faster and faster, except for the month of March, which felt like six years long. (laughs) So slow. So slow that we don't give ourselves credit, I think, enough for you know, this idea of small victories. And sometimes those small victories come in the fact that we did show up. And sometimes those small victories come in the fact that we've built bridges and we've built coalitions and spaces that we didn't imagine being built before. And so I've been trying to, particularly in this like literal moment where things feel very uncertain and it's really hard to see what impact could look like in this landscape, Mm -hmm. I've been trying to give myself room to appreciate the moments where I could have not showed up, I could have not participated, but we did, and counting that as a win. Because I think it's really easy for us to get into our own heads about what progress looks like. And I think in a world of Twitter and Instagram and just like this instantaneous feeling of results, like I can order something and it's here in 24 hours, that we have this very misguided sort of illusion about what progress should actually look like. And then there's also this comparison game that we constantly play, like, oh my gosh, he or she was able to create that and how much time? Or like, oh, that's what I should be doing. Or it doesn't count unless I'm able to demonstrate the impact, right? Megan mm-hmm. and I talk about that a lot, right? Because so much of our work is invisible. Yeah. And there's this invisible labor that comes just innately and naturally, I think, for women of color, where part of our labor is literally showing up to spaces that weren't built <laughs> for us and holding right. space, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not going right. to be documented on Instagram. And that's not going to no. get us invited to you know, whatever show or whatever interview or get us on the front page or whatever, Right. And so I think sometimes we have to disconnect from what the sort of broader world has told us what looks like impact and success and meaningful progress and start to create our own metrics and start to create our own rubric. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's what tears included. Oh, yeah. Tears <laughs> included. Tears and wine. Tears and wine. So, yeah, I think those are two things that I think between me and Megan have been really sources of encouragement, which is Megan's been really good about me. I think particularly at the beginning of our relationship, literally Megan sometimes would just send me texts that said, go sit down <laughs> somewhere and not sit at that tea. Like, S-A-T. Yeah, yeah, S-A-T. Yeah, S-A-T. Yeah, go right. sit down somewhere. <laughs> go sit down somewhere. 
because I was just this constant feeling of like, if I'm not there, if I'm not present, if mm-hmm. I'm not participating, right? Not only this, it, not so much this idea of people aren't going to think I'm down, but like, I'm going to miss out on something that could be transformational. Right. And I think from my end, it's been like, let's recalibrate what this success looks like or what progress looks like. And I think particularly in this mode where, and I don't think it's too dissimilar from like the civil rights movement, right? When we think about the most prominent activists getting a lot of media attention, but now it's more visceral because of Instagram and and Twitter, Mm -hmm. that it's like, oh, I'm not doing enough. It's like, no, they're just doing a better job of documenting it. (laughs) Yeah, it's just visible. visible. Your work is meaningful. And so between those two pieces, it's been really encouraging to me that we get to write our own narrative around this work and this shaming and the guilt and the feelings of being around invisible labor, mm-hmm. I think is one of the more powerful things that we can do through some of our platforms. And then, it, yeah, no, I would I say like also, you know, to find your people <laughs> and I don't want that to feel like work though. So I, that's why I paused a little bit, but I think it's important to have people who can, you know, encourage you or fill you up or tell you to sit down, you know, Mm -hmm. who really recognize the labor that you're putting in that might not be recognized on like in a broader sense, like, you know, you're not getting the news interviews, you're not, you know, there's kind of this celebrity activist culture that I think is really Mm -hmm. rampant right now. And, you know, that's not to say that they're not doing the work. I think that they are. There's just certain people who are getting, who have a louder, louder microphone or getting amplified eyes. more, right? And yeah, they get a yeah, lot of eyes. Yeah. Them. And it's like, but to remember your why and why you're doing the work, it's been crucial for me personally to have people in my life, uh, Virginia included, who can, you know, call that out and who can say like, no girl, like you're doing this every single day. It's okay. If you skip this March, you know, like, and yeah, it's, you need to go take a nap and you'll feel better, you know, so, so <laughs> yeah. that's important. Take, yeah. the nap. Take, take all the naps. Yeah. That's my advice. Take yeah. all the naps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think it is really important. You have to have your community. I mean, I say this all the time, but like, no one person is going to do everything on their own. It's just not possible. It really is not possible. You have to have people supporting you, people that have your back, people that are going to like, you know, tell you when you got to sit down, people that are going to help you. And I think that everything you guys both just said is so important. And I think people that are doing work right now that is invisible are going to feel encouraged after listening to this. I know that you know, we're getting kind of close to the end here. And so I just want to ask you guys, is there any women of color right now that are inspiring you mm-hmm. that you see they don't have to be, like I said, or like we've been saying, they don't have to be big celebrities or anything like that, but are there people that you want to shout out? Yeah. I'm going to choose a woman that is more international and then I'm going to choose a local woman that I think is doing incredible work. First woman is, her name is Rachel Ricketts. And she does some incredible work around creating space to both challenge sort of this idea of white privilege, particularly for white women, and challenge how they show up to be not just allies, but agitators, while also creating a space of empowerment for women of color. And I just think she does it in a very thoughtful way that's sort of grounded in sort of the, the innate emotions and psychology of how we show up as people but also like a very keen understanding of like 
how communities work and how sociology works. And so I would encourage folks to follow her on Instagram. She's got some really lovely singers <laughs> that'll give you a nice chuckle every Love a good once singer. in a while. Good singer, great. And on a local level, honestly, I would love to shout you, Christina, out and the women oh, of Misfits. Thank you. I think y'all have been extremely motivating for me on a personal level, just seeing the creativity and sort of unapologeticness that y'all have when you show up in the spaces. What I think was really beautiful is that y'all all do it so uniquely as individuals and then collectively. I mean, it's a pretty powerful force, like regimes talk to yeah. herself in the mirror at our event i'm sure she made That's people cry so she's so, so talented she's so talented when she so writes radical. it is and she was just like oh i just like wrote it in my head on the drive over <laughs> like, please stop talking and then i think about you and it so yeah i just i mean i don't know how you shout someone out on their own <laughs> podcast i would like to shout you out thank you no that's just, awesome yeah for unapologetically creating a space. And I think what's really beautiful is that y'all clearly are creating an intentional space for Asian, Asian American women, but with thoughtfulness about how other women of color can also show up in those spaces and recognizing the power that comes from that as well. Thank you so much. No, that's so sweet of you to say that. I was like, Nina's a complete workhorse. She's so (laughs) intentional about everything that she does. And they both have really taught me a lot working with them. And so, yeah, big shout out to them. I love them both. Yeah. I think the work that y'all are doing is amazing. It was really cool. I think, you know, kind of around the same time that we were launching Worlds of Rebellion to be like, yeah, okay. Like we would look at what y'all were doing and say like, yeah, they're like, this matters, right? Like we need to be creating this space. And, you know, there are other people who recognize that as well. So y'all are awesome. I think for me, there's one that she does have more national recognition, but so Brittany Packnett, she was one of the panelists at our Rebel and Rest launch at South by Southwest 2019. And now she's on, I believe, MSNBC as a commentator. But the reason why Brittany like inspires me or encourages me one, like, I literally feel like the words out of her mouth are like my text messages to Virginia. I just like don't post them publicly. <laughs> I just relate. Like, I feel like we're saying the same things. Then I found out our birthday is like three or four days apart or something. And so like, I was basically, yeah, I was like, okay, I get it. But also, <laughs> but Brittany has a humility. Like she, I guess, could be labeled as a celebrity activist, right? But there is a mm-hmm. humility to the way that she approaches things. I've seen her apologize when she got it wrong. I've seen her be extremely gracious to people who were not gracious to her that I think is sometimes missing. I've seen her kind of unapologetically call out white privilege and destructive whiteness, but at the same time hold space for white people to grow that want to grow. And so I just appreciate her style. I appreciate the humility that she displays that I don't always see from certain people that I guess would be also considered celebrity activists, most of them men. Um, And so so I, I appreciate Brittany. And she also has given me permission to kind of be more bold in my voice. Because then when I'm like, I just texted F to Virginia a day ago, but I didn't feel like I should tweet it because maybe it went too far. And I'm like, oh, I should tweet that. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. been cool. Wow. I can't wait to check out yeah, these people. She's, she's awesome. awesome. And then the 
other one is a lady named Austin Channing, who is disrupting whiteness in a faith space. And I've done a lot of work in kind of a non-homogenous faith space and finding where my voice fit from a perspective of my, at the intersection of my faith and race and politics and challenging, you know, I guess like white Christians to actually care (laughs) one about communities of color (laughs) beyond like some mission trip and to recognize that they have a mandate from a faith perspective to deconstruct white privilege and oppression. And Austin Channing is doing that on a larger scale. And it's just really been empowering me for me to watch her and read her to feel empowered to like continue to do the work in that space. Cause I will tell you, you want to talk about labor. Like it is one thing for me to show up to the (laughs) state Capitol and to tell these white men that like they're creating laws that are whack. Right. But it is a completely different thing to sit with white Christians And to be like, you actually like should care about this. Like how draining it is. It's just, oh my goodness. There's just no words for it. I'm sure. And I did that. I, you know, been doing that work for, you know, now going on six years in that space and having to talk to people from different political backgrounds and uh, anyway, so it's a lot. And so I just honor what she's sacrificing, what Austin Channing is sacrificing to do that work on such a large scale. Yeah. Wow. No, I can't even imagine, honestly. It sounds very difficult, and I'm glad that Austin's doing that. I'm seriously, I can't wait to look up all of these people and follow them and see what Mm -hmm. they're doing. I'm so excited. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to share this with everybody. Is there anything that you guys want to offer any events, announcements or anything to share with anybody, the people? Yeah, Yeah, we've got some things that we are developing, which, you know, obviously there is a, like for everyone, a bit of a pause on our programming that we were going to do at South by and some programming we had scheduled for this spring, but we are working to get all of those things developed so that we can onboard them virtually or digitally. So we would just encourage folks to follow us on Instagram at at Rosa Rebellion um, or on Twitter at Rosa Rebellion just to stay tuned to when we can finally announce some of those programming efforts as well as partnerships. And we look really forward to particularly in some of the work like Rebel Unrest where we feel like there is such a need for that avenue for people to be able to show up and be replenished and restored. Um, We really hope that we can offer that in a way that people can access it from their home. Yeah. 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 I'm going to link to you guys in the show notes with your website and your Instagram and everything like that. And then make sure that people know how to find you. Awesome. So yeah. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you. Well, that was my episode with Rosa Rebellion. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end. What did you think? Did this episode resonate with you? Let me know. Um, I really felt like it resonated for me. I feel like a lot of the time I get nervous putting my voice out there because I'm worried people are going to tell me I'm wrong and tell me that I'm not being considerate or I'm being ignorant or something like that. But you know what? People have to tell me those things so that I can grow and change and 
Hopefully you guys were inspired by this conversation. So if you like the show, share it with a friend you think would like it too. You can always find me on Instagram at Imbold Company. Make sure you rate, subscribe, leave a review if you're on iTunes. It helps other people find us. And as always, you can check out the full show notes with links to everything the guests that I mentioned today. Next week on the podcast, my guest is Isabella Toledo. And Isabella is a friend of mine. And we've known each other for a couple of years now. And truly, if you meet her, she's somebody that really radiates a positive energy. And we're going to talk about her personal journey with therapy, acknowledging her privilege and how we can help her family. So I don't know if you're signed up for our newsletter, but we sent out a link to her family's story in our newsletter last week. Her father is one of the Sitco Six, a group of six men who have been detained in Venezuela without trial since 2017. And I really wanted to have her on because I think it is really important that we, as a community, try to support Bella and her family and the other families involved as much as we can. So she's going to talk a little bit about her story and I have chills talking about it, but I think that's going to be a really amazing episode. And I know I said that all the time, but I truly believe that. So if you're still listening, please, please stay tuned for next week's episode. And don't forget the theme of this episode was thrive. So DM or comment on the episode post on Instagram with how you're thriving right now, especially with COVID. So thanks so much. Until next week, talk to you soon.